Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Government vs. the Robots, the fortnightly podcast that takes a look at how technology will affect politics in the future. Our guest this week is a Government vs. the Robots listener's dream. Chris Yu has worked at Uber, he's worked at the Treasury, he's worked at Policy Exchange, and today he's a senior fellow at the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change. We're going to be discussing just how much the future will look like the present, whether technology companies are due to become the next populist scapegoat, and exactly what fair expectations of big technology companies are in these increasingly political times. So first off, uh, Chris, do you want to introduce yourself to everybody? Yeah, hi. So my name's Chris. Uh, I'm Senior Policy Fellow for Technology at the Tony Blair Institute. So I head up our work on tech policy and how government ought to think about uh, the future um, and all the opportunities it contains. And what did you do before you were at the, the at TBI, as it's known? All right. So immediately before TBI, I was a general manager at Uber. Um, so I ran operations in Scotland and the north of England. Um, but, you know, in the midst of time, I've worked in... Uh, government, uh, in consulting, um, and in the charity sector. And of the jobs that you've done, because you've done some really interesting jobs, what was the one that uh, excited you most when you took it? You know what? I have been excited by all of them. Like I tend to follow the principle that um, you should take jobs that um, interest you and you think will challenge you, and all of them have ticked that box. But, you know, they've been very different. And one of the things that I've really appreciated is seeing different sides of the debate, right? The kind of questions that you deal with when you're working on digital inclusion are quite different from ones that you deal with when you are, uh, you know, running a technology platform that's about um, private hire and taxis. So, um, you know, having that uh, breadth of perspectives, I found really valuable. And I'm interested to know whether uh, when you worked at Uber, whether anybody thought that the fact you'd worked at the Treasury was cool. <laughs> well, you know, working at the Treasury used to be cool, like when I did it. I think, um, you know what, civil service as far as I'm aware, like remains an attractive employer. Like people always, when they score, like what do you want to do after you leave university? It always kind of ranks highly in, um, in all of that. But I think, um, you know, these sorts of things are changing, right? And the kind of vibe now to, um, you know, want to work in a startup first rather than go and do a graduate scheme. It's been a big shift, right? And interesting. Well, let's get down to business. So I've spent the, the past few days kind of reading through much of your recent output, which I found really, really enjoyable and thought-provoking. Fantastic. Um, and one of the things that kind of uh, kept cropping up a couple of times was this idea that the saying that you, you, if, if, you if it's free, you're the product in the realm of the internet, um, which kind of we hear all over the place, is potentially unhelpful. Can you explain why that might be an unhelpful phrase? Yeah, so you hear it all the time, and it makes for an amazing soundbite. Um, I guess the, the kind of the issue that I've got is that um, sometimes... The kind of imprecision 
makes it much harder to have the structured conversation around the topic, right? So it comes up in the context of Facebook or Google or any of these internet platforms, which are free at the point of use. And then, you know, the kind of implicit narrative is that they are hoovering up your data and they are making a killing off the back of that. And these companies are doing very well, right? Financially, there's no doubt about that. Um, But I think um, what it does is slightly kind of muddy the water in terms of people's understanding of what is going on because it implies that, um, you know, maybe the companies that build these products and services don't really care about their users. And it maybe implies that actually the app is just a kind of veneer, right? It's the thing which they use, the Trojan horse, in order to get your data. The reality, of course, is that um, for a lot of these companies, of course they care about users, right? If you don't have users, then you can't bring advertisers or, depending on how you monetize, um, you know, different other people to the platform, um, and then your business model collapses. And um, the products are real products, right? Like, if you think back a generation, could you have imagined Gmail or Maps or Facebook or Netflix or any of these sorts of products? They are, you know, revolutionary. So users do matter. Apps are real things, not just a kind of veneer. There is definitely a a debate to be had around how the data is being used and the boundaries and the power and everything else. But, you know, I think muddying it with stuff which is emotive but maybe not so... Uh, factually accurate doesn't help right in an environment where we struggle and we kind of berate politicians for not having a good grip on technology if you have a lot of folk perpetuating these kind of you know conventional wisdom which is easy and feels comforting but actually slightly kind of uh you know deflects the debate doesn't help and another piece of conventional wisdom that you've challenged i, I do wonder whether on if, if you're not paying your the product is, is perhaps a useful insight into the business model but obscures the fact that there is a useful product unless unless perhaps you're talking about candy crush which we're not <laughs> the other thing that, that jumped out at me was you'd written about people often assuming that the future will be quite a lot like the present mm. and my sense is that everybody likes to get into a dystopia versus utopia debate when it comes to tech yeah and i feel like actually you know like any present it's going to be in some ways quite good and in some ways really bad mm-hmm. and you know, it won't be dystopia or utopia it'll just be reality at yep. that point yeah um, but maybe i'm then falling into the trap of thinking the future will be just like the present <laughs> i think um there's this thing you know, it's because we're human right and humans are fallible and and we have difficulty with situations that are a long way from our lived experience so your kind of natural tendency is to extrapolate forwards in a relatively linear way. And the reason that's interesting in the context of this discussion is lots of developments in technology um, tend not to be linear, right? You have these relationships, you know, everybody's talking about, maybe it's like passe now, right? The singularity, exponential change. And in those sorts of environments, um, things can bubble along gently and then they can reach a tipping point and then accelerate very quickly. Um, so it may be that actually your past five years experience is not a good guide to what will happen in the next two but it's difficult to envisage that because actually that's the way that we experience most of our lives the trouble for policymakers then is that you know you tend to design on the basis of incremental change on what you currently have Um, and that kind of has a couple of issues one is that if something very disruptive does happen you're maybe not prepared for it Um, but on the flip side there are some big potential opportunities that if you invested in them now could pay off many orders of magnitude in the future but because you have trouble kind of rationalizing that and fitting it into your classic cost benefit analysis then maybe you don't go for them i think most of the people listening to this podcast will be familiar with singularity as a concept but for Mm. anybody who isn't can you just run us through it so um this idea that um you know in an environment where change is compounding um and you you have these kind of reinforcing cycles so that um 
uh, you know, products, you know, in the case of a lot of internet companies, you know, products uh, has a good offering, it attracts users, that makes it more attractive to more users, the whole thing kind of quickly spirals. Um, the idea that, you know, that happens across a broad variety of domains to the point where actually the kind of notions of um, society and the economy and what it means to be a business or internet platform kind of dissolve because everything is run so fast out of control. Um, and, you know, some people would say that is imminent. Others would say that is 50 or 100 years off. Um, but it's an interesting debate to have. And this is a big Silicon Valley debate, is that right? Um, it has been for a while, yeah. And um, I think, you know, particularly not quite so much now, but certainly a little while ago when there was all this kind of buzz around the pace of change and the idea that, you know, the next big advance would be, you know, revolutionary, you know, in a way that, you know, we've seen some big changes, but it would be an order of magnitude again. Um, I think maybe there's a little bit more kind of contrition and maybe a little bit more skepticism around some of that now. But on the other hand, you know, when you talk to the folk who are really on the vanguard of artificial intelligence, machine learning, the sorts of things that they, some of them, um, you know, think will be possible on a relatively near horizon. Um, you know, we have all this angst about automation and impact on jobs and so on and so forth, all of which is legitimate and important. Um, if you have artificial general intelligence, the ability for a machine to actually replicate human thought, then um, all bets may be off. Yeah, the hundred billion dollar question is: Does that happen in ten years' time, a hundred years' time, or never? And while we're thinking about sort of thoughts that people in Silicon Valley are having, I, I noticed you wrote that some of the sharpest visions for the future can be found or are found in Silicon Valley on the planet today. And um, is that really the case? You know, is is it the case in your view that it is? You know, it seems to be received wisdom that Silicon Valley is shaping the future and they know what it's going to look like. You know, would, Is there nowhere else that you see a compelling version of the future other than California? I think, so there are places. I think that um, if you're talking about the private sector domain, you compare the mission statements of some of the big technology companies and the startups, um, primarily in California, but not exclusively in California. Um, you know, and the way that they talk about you know, being the world's greatest this or organizing, you know, all the X on the planet, you compare that to your kind of classic mission statement for British or European company, which is, you know, do well and so on and so forth, but it's not like, you know, quite so fundamental. Um, so I think in that respect, I do think it's still true. There are exceptions, of course, but primarily that's that's where it is. I guess, um, you know, if you think about the contrast between the sorts of futures albeit kind of narrowly defined, that um, some of these pioneering companies can articulate. Compare that against the sort of vision that um, is being offered by contemporary political parties. I think there's a lot of dissonance um, for fun, right? Go and download the manifestos of the main parties at the last election. And yeah, they talk a bit about the future and the sorts of things that they would do incrementally to improve the status quo. I would think you would struggle to find a really robust, exciting, compelling vision of how the future will be better not slightly better but radically better um i guess the other um, angle on this would be uh, amongst those um parts of the world that maybe don't share our kind of affinity for liberal democracy right you might argue that the chinese government has a very strong and well-defined vision for the future may not be one that we uh, necessarily subscribe to though and what we have been doing on this podcast since our inception in october last year um, is looking at how technology will affect politics in the future and even in the time that we've been going, that's become kind of more evident. We're not going to go into the whole Cambridge Analytica saga today, but it seems more evident than ever before that technology really is shaping our politics, both practically and electorally, 
but also in day-to-day conversation as well. So for you as somebody who thinks about these issues, where do you see the kind of next steps of how technology might affect politics? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think um, a million things happening at once. So let me pull out a few. Um, I think one of them is around, um, you know, what the doorstep issues will be and how that will change. Right? Like if you think again about, you know, the, maybe the last few general elections that we've had in the UK and you talk to politicians about, you know, where did technology feature and the sorts of things that people are asking you? Yeah, maybe everyone kind of wants to um, you know, moan about the state of broadband and are there enough mobile phone masks or there shouldn't be mobile phone masks or whatever it is. Um, but by and large, you know, tech wasn't a big doorstep issue. Um, I think there's a potential for that to change. You're seeing a lot of um, you know, grassroots interest in these questions now about privacy and power and control and everything else. That's one part of it. I think there's an interesting phenomenon happening around... Um, the kind of the nature of a political party and the extent to which that as an organizing principle will hold in the face of technology. And you've started to see this um, you know, with a number of movements in the UK and in the US um, where actually the ability of a national executive to retain control over the grassroots is being quite upended because you've got the ability, very decentralized ability to kind of organize peer-to-peer. And, you know, what that means for measured discipline and manifestos and everything else is kind of interesting and quite unknown. Um, but I think the the really transformational question is whether any political party will kind of grasp the potential of technology for revolutionary improvements in public services. So, um, you know, you can mount a good argument that, you know, you could make radical improvements to a Western healthcare system if you really embrace technology, and right, there's a bunch of challenges in there, but actually your ability to shift from a system which is mostly about uh, crisis management and is very responsive to one which was much more predictive and you know, completely shifted the burden away from people in hospitals onto um, you know, living active, healthy lifestyles, assisted by technology um, you know, with AI and machine learning and everything else knitted in there would be revolutionary and could probably neutralize the conversation about the future of the NHS or the US healthcare system. But that is a big, bold place for somebody to go, and it's difficult for political parties to articulate that. You've given a fascinating answer, Chris. You've also, you've also given me an opportunity to plug the Government versus the Robots back catalogue. Fantastic. Uh, episode two, uh, A Doctor on Your Wrist, which looks at the potential of, uh, te- of healthcare technology to shape politics in the future. Yeah, fantastic. And I think on, um, on public services, I was going to ask what excites you most about the kind of changes that tech could bring to politics, but I guess you've kind of answered that. So let me ask you what worries you the most. What worries me the most in terms of public service delivery, technology, or more society and technology. society and technology? I think there's a few things. I think um, there's something about the kind of the, the power imbalances that we're feeling now, right? And I think the big risk is that you know, faced with some of the dilemmas that technology has thrown up recently, um, you know, we end up in a place where it's very difficult to have a positive conversation. And I think you know, in the context of um, you know, the broader political changes that we're seeing. If you think about the kind of rise of populist parties across the West over the last few years, um, you know, what began as an attack on globalization and one where, um, you know, the right by and large scapegoated immigrants and the left by and large scapegoated you know, large multinational corporations and offered different sorts of solutions and a lot of outrage, but not a lot of answers. Um, you know, as those movements look for the next thing to hang their outrage on, I think it's entirely plausible, and I think we're already started down this path, that technology actually becomes the scapegoat for both, 
right? Like those on the on the extreme left, you know, for them it's a brilliant scapegoat because you can tell this narrative that you know these companies that put profit before doing the right thing, and for those on the right, you can tell this narrative that actually these um, corporations are destroying our traditions and our values and our communities, and that is a pretty challenging alliance if populist left and the populist right both turn on technology and the trouble is that suffocates any debate about um, not just fixing the problems but actually unlocking all the potential and so you know you can absolutely right solve the questions about privacy and addiction to mobile phones and cybersecurity and all this sort of stuff which is not easy and technology has created new challenges um, what concerns me is that we get so stuck there that we don't unpack that conversation about healthcare or education or the role of the state or all the sorts of stuff which ought to be the animating factors for a positive future but the good news is that's why we've got government well indeed (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and that's i mean that is the essence of the the inquiry of this whole series of podcasts is well what should government be doing what could government be doing to address some of this because there's we don't need to go into the very evident lag in public policy and regulation around yep. the internet let alone let alone fourth industrial revolution technology yep. um so before we stay on to morose a riff <laughs> uh can you give me as well as the healthcare just a couple of examples of things that you think that are there for the taking for government in terms of making the most of the potential of technology yeah so um couple of others to think about i think there's a really interesting policy opportunity around i guess it's like cities urban environments right like actually a place like london where we're recording this or actually any other large western town or city um tends to suffer from a lot of overcrowding house prices are often an issue serious congestion pollution all these sorts of problems that are a result of cities being successful but also an artifact of history and the fact that a lot of these places and the infrastructure that they contain were designed before we had pervasive connectivity and cloud computing and so on and so forth. You know, there are, um, you know, very interesting studies around the potential for things like self-driving cars and integration between self-driving cars, transit and bike sharing, for example, to take um, an awful lot of traffic off our streets um, and also make mobility much more um, affordable for people. And in that environment, you know, in a world where um, something like fifth or a quarter of the surface area of a a major city is currently reserved for parking cars which by the way stay parked for almost all of their existence and then driven you know for a single digit percentage of the time that is all space that could be social housing schools green spaces healthcare which would be transformative for quality of life so i think that's one and it's an area where you see some cities like london really pushing forwards but actually it shouldn't just be the preserve of these kind of big mega cities it ought to be something that is much more broadly adopted um, and I also think there is, um, you know, more work to be done around technology and education, which you know comes up a lot. And I think um, it's a difficult area because the temptation is to say, and we've had rounds of this in the past. The temptation is to say, well, you know, throw a lot of kid at classrooms, or um, you know, do video lectures or whatever. I think we've moved on from that a little bit, but there is still some opportunity around, um, you know, how do you do a much better job of personalising learning for kids so that everybody gets an experience that's closer to having you know, one-to-one tuition. How do you use technology in a way that takes a lot of the administrative burden off teachers so they can spend more time on the human contacts? How do you ensure that you help um, students make good decisions about what subjects to study? All of that actually um, ought to be ripe for more work. It's not an area where I think there's a lot of good examples to point to, but it feels like if government were thinking about the things that it cares about, then that would be one of the obvious ones to go after. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. What about something like identity? I mean, the ID cards debate was pretty controversial back in the day for those of us that remember it but presumably it's a lot easier now to create digital identities that enable people to engage with public services much more efficiently yeah and i think there's been um been a kind of resurgence of discussion around this and we've published a little bit on this recently which um uh, you may have seen um what's interesting now is that you've got technologies that enable you to improve on paper documents right you know the kind of situation where at the moment you show up somewhere and they ask you to prove who you are and you maybe show your driving license or your passport and your employer takes a photocopy and stuffs it in a filing cabinet somewhere which is not very secure um there are ways to do that now which enable you to do that digitally to make the assertion in a credible way without oversharing and while staying in control of your data um and crucially to do that in a way which doesn't end up building you know big state profiles of people's activity you know a lot of the concern in the past was you know the potential for overreach for kind of you know the sort of orwellian style surveillance and there are ways and means now to do this which mitigate a lot of those challenges are there ways and means to do it that mitigate uh, two words which would strike fear into the heart of the taxpayers alliance although i think a lot strikes fear into the heart of the taxpayers alliance but <laughs> two words which are government and it projects um, and it strikes me that i mean you you're right you know we could create digital identity much more easily and we could hugely overhaul public services um, and that's going to require the bureaucracy of government to get its head around delivering effective, streamlined IT. So aren't we kind of in cloud cuckoo land with our expectations? Yeah, it's a good question. And you're right, government doesn't have a stellar track record on um, on IT. I think a lot of this stuff, though, is um, it's interesting because almost what you're asking government to do has changed slightly, right? So it's a lot less about allocate the gigantic outsource contract to a big systems integrator for a gazillion pounds to deliver this massive high-spec thing. And it's much more about government as the body that sets the standards, defines the interoperability, and you know underpins the ecosystem. Um, and that is a different role. And actually, it's a different skill set. And there's a debate to be had about whether government has that skill set and ability to execute. But it ought to be able um, to organize this in a way that isn't throwing you know, X billion pounds at a solution that takes forever and is never delivered. Does government have that skill set? I think um, there's a kind of there's a broad question about skills in the economy um, and whether 
you know, outside of the tech sector, you have enough folk who, um, it's not about necessarily about coders, right? But it's about the kind of broad appreciation of technology and that kind of way of thinking. Um, I think government in the UK has done an interesting um, and good job in recent past of bringing more of those sorts of skills in. You know, you've seen, um, you know, there have been ebbs and flows, right? And the kind of power balance moves around Whitehall. But, you know, you've seen more people with digital skills and um, technical skills and user experience skills coming into Whitehall, which is good. Um, Are there enough? Probably not. If you think about the generalist skill set that, you know, I had when I was a civil servant, didn't contain because we didn't do all this wizzy digital stuff then, um, you know, a lot of that kind of appreciation for those sorts of technologies. Um, but nowadays it probably ought to. And I think, you know, the more that the time progresses and technology develops, the more you ought to be thinking about actually every department ought to have that capability. Um, you probably also need somewhere central that has the kind of vision and the ability to drive it through. I think so. There's Everybody's familiar with the government comms service or the government communication mm. service. There is a government digital service as well, but I don't know how how much traction it's managed to get in the kind of slightly uh, slightly more backwater areas of Whitehall um, and, and maybe we should go and find them and ask them but I um, I wonder what you think is a fair set of expectations of government so we can have this conversation about how magnificent the world could be if we could get government to kind of get with the program on tech mm. but then we also have to be realistic and pragmatic about the nature of bureaucracy the fiscal position of the uk yeah so you know let's fast forward 10 years what is it fair to expect or what should we expect or even demand of government yeah it's a great question and i think um you're right like the reality of the bureaucracy can be more daunting maybe than people realize um but you know having said that i think um you know if we don't set our sights high then you will never achieve you know the kind of transformational change um that you want I think the challenge, you mentioned the public finances, I think the difficulty with some of this um, conversation is that, um, you know, like, and we've had this rounds of this in the past, um, but less about technology, this idea that actually it's an invest now to kind of save and reap the rewards later is difficult in a very tight fiscal environment. But the kind of transformation that we're talking about in terms of healthcare could make a phenomenal difference to the cost burden, which over a long horizon would be very powerful. Um, but, you know, how do you square off the incentives facing the Chancellor of the Exchequer who's got to stand up in Parliament and present his budgets against, you know, the long-term strategic objectives of the Department for Health and Social Care. So I think that um, that actually is less a less a kind of civil service question. It's more of a political leadership question, right? And what is the pitch that you make to the country about the way that you're going to organise and your kind of overall overall strategy? I think there's something in here as well about, you know, what's the um, you know, appropriate way to think about collaboration and partnership with the private sector? So government sometimes has a tendency to want to do everything or to think that because it's an outcome that's provided as a public service, it has to be produced in the public sector. And, you know, that's right in some circumstances, but in others, actually, it would be massively more efficient or innovative to think about a partnership. And you can do that in ways which protect integrity and ensure that people are not excluded and everything else. Um, And you've got to recognise that government is different, right? It doesn't have the luxury of just ignoring the hard cases. But... Um, you know, the idea that actually, because it's traditionally being a public service, it can only be done by government, I think is outmoded. I sometimes expect of government uh, collective ministerial responsibility uh, and high degrees <laughs> of competence, uh, but I'm starting to wonder whether that's fair as well. But anyway, we probably best not get into that. Uh, talking about the government's relationship with technology companies in particular and public expectations, tech companies are kind of more in the public glare now than ever before. 
Um, I think the the veneer of, of very good branding and early early adoption excitement has definitely faded and been chipped away at. Mm. Um, so what should we expect of tech companies now that they are finding themselves forced into a position of civic responsibility? Yeah, so, you know, I think um, it's an interesting one, and you're right, like the veneer um, is, is sort of changed. I think that um, you're seeing more companies... Uh, you know, cognizant of their responsibilities, and you've seen definitely seen a change of tone in the leadership of lots of the big American companies. You know, like recognizing they have responsibilities to society, you know, systemically important in a way that they weren't when they were smaller. Quite how that will play out, I'm not sure. And I think there's, you know, a lot of the policy debate over you know, the months ahead is going to be about the extent to which, you know, you can have governments set the framework and companies, you know, almost police themselves or sort of optimize against you know, an appropriate set of criteria or the extent to which you have to regulate or force their behaviour or constrain their behaviour in, in some way, shape or form. Um, I hope that will be a rational process. I suspect that actually politics will overtake rationality and, you know, a lot of the time, um, you know, very draconian measures feel very cathartic. I mean, it's incredibly satisfying to kind of punish or to kind of knock some of these companies down a peg. I think that's probably appropriate in some circumstances, but I think it also risks some pretty serious collateral damage in so others. What does a, a non-punitive regulation look like, in your view? Well, I mean, there's the question, and it's something that I haven't got a, um, a complete answer on. I do think you've got to be careful with this idea that we should just, you know, break up the tech giants. I think there's a couple of problems with that. One is that um, if actually the economics of the internet and modern technology means that a lot of these companies naturally attain scale, then, yeah, you can break one up. But if you haven't addressed the underlying dynamics, then all you do is clear the way for the next company to do exactly the same thing. And also, it can be damaging in terms of, um, you know, for, in some cases, the, the value that you get as a user is bound up in the fact that it's a large product. You know, like um, social network that didn't have anybody else on it would not be much use to you, right? A real-time traffic app that no one else was using and therefore couldn't tell you what the traffic was like would not be much use. So we've got to think about how do you preserve those benefits but also think about the big systemic challenges that some of these companies pose. So I think the way through this is we've got to find a way to operationalize. We ask companies uh, you know, to maximize value for shareholders. We have like a regulatory regime which thinks, you know, depending on the country, it thinks about consumer welfare. It thinks about the impacts of competition in the market. It should not, should not be beyond the wit of humankind to think, okay, how do I operationalize some sense of the impacts of some of these businesses on our mental health, on the integrity of our democracy, um, on the impact of our, on our environment. These sorts of questions, you know, the, the compact that bounds together the individual, the state, taxation and public services. And right now, that's harder than just measuring concentration or the change in price. But we ought to kind of take that head on. And it's a complex set of trade-offs, right? There's no kind of black and white answer. These companies are not especially well regulated. They're also not especially well taxed. Um, so, is there something we should be thinking about in terms of how to tax more more fairly? Yeah. Well, you know what? We need to fix the tax system. Full stop. So, um, I think um, what you're seeing with a lot of the debate around tax and technology companies is, you know, they have really exposed a much more fundamental issue, which is the kind of international arrangements around things like corporation tax. Right, so plenty of companies um, before we had all this kind of whizzy technology stuff were on manoeuvres in order to reduce their tax liabilities. What you see now, because technology companies are good at this stuff and because they've got enormous scale, the kind of output of that, the magnitude of what appears to have gone missing, 
is significantly higher. And yeah, that feels pretty offensive in a lot of circumstances. Um, you also, I think, have a little bit of misunderstanding occasionally around the nature of some of the businesses. So, you know, particularly for in this era of you know, going back to what we're talking about in terms of exponential growth, right, and the ability of things to kind of ramp up very quickly, you have a lot of products which have a lot of users and maybe superficially have a lot of a lot of revenue. And then you have politicians like banging the drum and saying, we've got to tax these companies harder. May well be they don't make any money. May well be they lose money. And actually, the tax regime is designed not to punitively punish companies that are losing money. So, again, the kind of this dissonance between the the reality and the perception can make the debate harder to have. Are there any <laughs> practical ideas on regulation or tax that that have caught your eye? So, I think um, what's coming out of uh, Europe in terms of GDPR, which I'm sure lots of listeners will be familiar with, I think is a real step forward. You know, that's a good example of um, both. You know, a number of countries working together in order to force an outcome which is going to be consistent and not you know leave a lot of room for arbitrage between different markets, but also is you know massively more attuned to the reality of the world in which we live. So I think that's probably the best example to point to at the moment. I think some of the other stuff that's happening at the moment, questions like um, you know should you start taxing revenues rather than profits, um, are probably more you know a means to force a deeper conversation. Right? It's not probably. It's not, you know, from an economic point of view, an optimal way to organise things. But if it forces people to confront, actually, you know, how do we work together to build a system which does function, provide the right incentives, and ensures that the state doesn't end up um, completely out of pocket, then you know, it could be a good stepping stone. On GDPR, I had um, noticed the suggestion that actually a lot of what Facebook and others did in the early days to kind of generate the scale that they have now was. Uh, and it's, it's cropped up in recent news stories get not just your data but the data of all of your friends and that's how they built their platforms and gdpr effectively <laughs> prevents that type of behavior therefore does that not then risk making some of the kind of tech giants unassailable uh i think it probably does so you're right like so if you think about um some of the um the apps that we now take for granted as having massive user bases i think instagram is a good example of this right so in the early days of instagram um, you would bond Instagram to your Twitter accounts. It would then be able to email all of your Twitter contacts saying, Chris is on Instagram, would you like to join him? So that ability to rebuild your social graph in another environment and then use that as a lever to massively grow the platform is what's got a lot of these products started. And um, yeah, under GDPR, one of the things that it's very clear about is that um, you can take a lot of your data with you, but what you can't do is take your friend's data with you. And there are good reasons for that. However, if you care about competition and innovation and new challenges, then it suddenly become much harder for somebody to get that first leg up. Um, so yeah, there's a, a you know real kind of issue, and this is true of a lot of regulation, not just in the tech environment. That uh, what can happen as you start to regulate um, you know, big, powerful companies is that you put them in a position where you sort of um, you know you cement their position. They're able to adapt, and they can hire a hundred thousand of the best policy people and lawyers and compliance and everything else. For the startup that's just trying to get going, that can't afford any of that, and has no longer got the ability to do that initial kind of growth, life just became much harder. Now, it's a trade-off. These are all a trade-off. There's no kind of right or wrong answer to this, but I think what's maybe missing from the debate sometimes is an appreciation of what you give up in order to have something else. And a quick check, a social graph is essentially a modern-day Rolodex, is that right? Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. So, you know, who are all of your friends and how are you connected to them? And we had um, Rachel Caldercott from Dot Everyone on the show a couple of weeks ago, 
And she was suggesting that she was hopeful, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but I would characterise what she was saying as being hopeful that perhaps the internal culture of some of these companies and the considerations of increasingly large workforces might come to bear on how they carry out their work. Now, you've worked at Uber, which I won't ask you about culture there because that's something that's been in the news before. But do you, do you think there is a possibility that actually internal culture could have a significant impact on the future of some of these companies? I think it will. And I think um, it's quite easy for the press to demonize a lot of the staff and the kind of environments in some of these big technology companies. My experience, having worked in the sector and knowing a lot of people um, who work a lot of different places, is that actually um, you know, people are, by and large, well-meaning and they want to make a world a better place and they kind of see the technology that they're building as a way to achieve that. And yeah, I think you are seeing more recognition that the staff at a lot of these companies you know, have a voice. Lots of them actually you know, have pretty good, transparent, open cultures. Um, you're starting to see things like, at the moment, um, you know, this question about uh, Google working uh, with the US Defense Department and you know, it's using its machine learning tools and its APIs to help them uh, assess drone imagery. And you're seeing Google employees question whether that's an appropriate um, activity for the company to, to pursue. Um, and, you know, I think it's healthy that they're having that debate and that employees are able to kind of be part of that. Um, you know, and as more companies grow and as there's a kind of more transparency around their activities and there's more kind of interchange between the worlds of policy and tech, I think, um, yeah, I think I'd be optimistic too. And if you could, uh, just for a moment, imagine me as a particularly stingy genie. Uh, and instead of giving you three wishes, I will uh, I will grant you just one, just the one, and uh, and say so you can do one thing to improve the the current state of affairs or the future state of affairs. What would you go for? You know, I would find a way for um yeah for the for the politician, the political leaders who are open minded about the future. I would find a way for them to get some like direct like one to one download from. You know, the technologists about the way the world could be because I think the biggest issue in all of this is that um, the two sides talk past each other right the politicians don't they don't have the time or the bandwidth particularly in the modern environment to really engage with the substance and you know frankly I think a lot of the folk driving the agenda on the corporate side um, are probably um, you know they're bright and engaged and highly technical but naive sometimes about what it's really like to work in government and in politics and try to deliver and compromise and I think if you could make that conversation a bit more healthy um, that would serve us all very well. Well, let's hope they all start by listening to Government versus the Robots. Indeed, it's a good place to start. Uh, Chris, uh, it's been a pleasure having you here. I appreciate That's you That's all for this week. Thanks Big much. thanks to Thank Sky you. Redman for her help with the production and editing of this podcast. If you've enjoyed this week's episode, please do subscribe to the podcast, maybe email your friends about it, or tweet us at Government versus the Robots. That's at G-O-V-T underscore V-S underscore Robots. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.